Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together again to to wrestle with your word and to seek after your face. We thank you for the morning of worship that we've had already, um, good word that we've heard about the announcement of your coming and your powerful entry into the world. Um, we are not the same because of it, Lord, and we're grateful. And I pray that today, as we round this series out and uh, in this time together, that you will bless the teacher and those who are here to, to listen, and that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts to understand wonderful things out of your law. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we're rounding out our series today on select Advent texts, and I thought um, we'd turn to the New Testament today, just because I don't want you to think I don't like the New Testament. It's a great appendix. I'm glad it's there. I I, I just... um, I've told you I'm on a bit of a mission, you know, for people to to sort of to love the Old Testament more, but I, I need to remind myself as well, you know, that we do have a, a two testament canon, and and uh, and the New Testament is important too. I had an, I had a prof and one time used to say that, you know, that people often treat the Old Testament like it's the red carpet that sort of rolled out into the new, and then once you get into that big mansion of the New Testament, you kind of roll up that carpet and put it back in the house, and. Um, so we'll, I, I try to lean against that, but it's 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 good to um, to go to the New Testament. So we're doing that today in Luke chapter two, and I didn't know this would come out of the pageant, but I'm, I'd wanna, I wanted to speak and reflect with you a little bit on on the prayer of Simeon, uh, which we heard this morning. So I'll read this text, and I'll probably reread it a, a couple of times as well um, as we as we think about. Really, this text that hovers between the world of the Testaments, old and new, functions as as Simeon in many ways, and Anna, who comes after Simeon, function. And John the Baptist, too, really, kind of function like hinges on the door, on the the two-level door of the Old and the New Testament, around which the entirety of of the canon works. These are figures who have a foot both in the world of the Old Testament and in the world of the New. I, I like figures like this, and Simeon is especially moving. Here's the story. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, uh, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, uh, which taps into a kind of deep and rich theology of the firstborn son in the Old Testament, which is rather um, significant to understanding, I think, the whole of the Old Testament. You'll recall in the book of Exodus that Israel is understood as God's firstborn son. Um, When Moses is told in Exodus chapter 4 to go to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh uh, to let his people go, the exact wording in Exodus 4 was, and you shall say to Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me, so that he may serve me. So this notion about the firstborn being consecrated and set apart to the Lord was really very much wrapped up in the whole of the Old Testament understanding of God's blessing of Israel, which is what makes the whole encounter between Abraham and and God with Isaac so terrible and tragic. Uh, This, uh, come to give me your firstborn son, and Abraham said, okay. So they're coming and they're giving uh, this one over to the Lord. They're dedicating Jesus to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And now we'll get to our main part. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Um, this You all know this. I don't mean to question you here. But um, the, the name Jesus Christ, Christ is not really a, a proper name. I mean, it's become that way de facto over time. But Christ is not really a proper name. It's Christos, which is the Greek translation of Mashiach, uh, which is the Hebrew for, the, for a messianic figure. So Christos is really more of a kind of adjectival descriptor of who Jesus was, his particular, his particular role. He is the Mashiach. And so here you have Simeon who's told by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's, that is Yahweh's Christos, his Messiah. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple. Um, that's a kind, I'm, I'm using, I like the RSV, I'm using that this morning. That's a kind of, um, uh, freewheeling reading on this. Um, it's really a little bit more simple. And by the Holy Spirit, He comes to the temple. So one, one could in, extrapolate from this that it is He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but for some reason, uh, the Holy Spirit is driving Simeon to the temple. Um, you'll recall that the Spirit of God does this kind of thing often uh, throughout the Bible, especially in our New Testament um, you remember Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased to hear that. And then Jesus is driven by whom? By the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Um, Philip was walking around in Acts and the Spirit laid on his heart to move toward the Ethiopian eunuch. And he went to this eunuch by the Spirit. And then after he has this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, and by the Spirit, he's now somewhere else. So this is the operative work of the Holy Spirit moving Simeon uh, to go to the temple. How? I mean, these are the kind of philosophical questions that I'm sure you ask in private moments. I do too. Well, how did he know? I mean, how did he know that it was the Spirit of God moving him? How did, why, why not a, you know, a bad piece of cheese from afternoon lunch? Um, how, do, how do they know this? Well, the, the Bible actually doesn't often give us that kind of insight except for the indication beforehand that this was a long pattern for Simeon. Simeon had walked with the Holy Spirit for a long time. And so, I mean, to put it in other terms, um, Simeon was tuned in by the power of God into the Holy Spirit. And he heard and he went to the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, isn't this is a wonderful scene? Here's this elderly man. He took him up in his arms, that is Jesus, and he blessed God. And he said, and you, you're familiar with this, all you Anglican types out here, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
Well, that's not the end of the story, though. It's kind of Paul Harvey's and now the rest of it. Simeon blessed him, and then he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is spoken against, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. And then there was a prophetess named Anna, and, the, and it goes on. So I want to talk two, two, uh, two prongs this morning with you with this uh, prophecy about, from Simeon. I want to talk about Simeon first, and then I want to talk about what he said. So first, how is Simeon described? Simeon is described, this obscure figure. Who is he? We don't know. Not much is known about him at all, actually. But Simeon is a righteous man. He is devout, or he's pious. This is one of my favorite phrases, especially given our opening hymn this morning. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. He's saying, I'm being metaphorical here, but he's saying quite often, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. I mean, Simeon is an Advent figure. Simeon is a figure who stands in between the times, knowing that he'd been promised that the consolation of Israel would come and he would see, and he was waiting to see it. He was in a season of Advent. His whole life, by the Spirit of God, was an Advent life, a hoping life, a looking forward kind of life. It goes on to say that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it also says that he was waiting for the revelation of God. He was waiting to see this one that the Lord had said he would see before he would die. So if I could sort of wrap all that up. Simeon was a man who walked with God for many years. And number one, had been given a promise. And number two, was looking for the comfort or the consolation of Israel. So if we were to sort of sit Simeon down, and by the character characterization of Simeon that we have in this small little text in the book of Luke, and were to ask Simeon on the basis of how he's described, Simeon, what kind of person are you? How would you describe yourself? I think the answer would be Simeon was someone who was waiting and hoping. He was waiting and he was hoping. All of this influenced by the power of the Spirit of God on his life. He was waiting and he was hoping. And I think, frankly, if I can extrapolate from this, and I do so carefully because I know that Simeon is a unique figure and I don't want to try to make him a a one-size-fits-all t-shirt. But Simeon, as a figure who impels upon us something about what it means to follow after God, invites us, I believe, into this particular posture as well in our own lives of faith as we follow our Lord, as He followed His, to this Advent life. You remember last week I mentioned this letter from Dietrich Bonhoeffer to his parents about Advent, wishing them a blessed Advent, and then going on to say, but isn't it true that all of our lives are really shaped as Advent existences? I thought about that this morning, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this before the morning's over, but waiting and hoping. You know, my children are giddy excited about Christmas. Um, Yours are too, or your grandchildren. They're excited about Christmas. Although, um, 
You know, a few Christmas memories stick out for me, as I'm sure you have your own poignant memories from Christmas in your childhood. I do remember very strongly um, Christmas night depression. Do you know this feeling, right? I mean, all of the anticipation being built up, the Christmas Eve family gathering, which was always a little dicey, but we had the Christmas family gathering. And then it was Christmas morning, and there it was, and oftentimes there were gifts that I had anticipated, and there they were. And then in the afternoon, I played with those gifts, and then at night, it was like, well, it's over, right? It's over. I think about that for my children. I mean, we sort of breed this. I, I rest, I, I overthink these things, but I think about this with my own, my own children. It's like, you know what? We're setting you boys up for like an enormous amount of disappointment, right? And, and you're probably going to get some of the things you really wanted. And you're going to find out the hard way, you know what? It, it, it's, just, it's, it's not going to be that great, right, at the end of the day. Now, when I think about that as I sit in church this morning, right, sort of looking at the mass of people sitting around us on your pew, on your row. Um, you know, Christmas, this season, does multiple things for different people. And I, I, I was not sensitive to that, I think, as a younger man. But I think as time goes on, you begin to realize that for every giddy child, there's a grieving heart, right? Um, and, and that's everywhere, just a stone's throw, anywhere around you. For every thrilled and happy, star-gazed-eyed child, there's someone else who's really grieving during this season. This is a hard season. The memories are mixed. They're hard. They're difficult. And we live, I believe, in that tension, Right in life, in, in, in the whole sum of our lives that are shaped in this Advent way like Simeon where we are waiting and we are hoping. So I don't, you know, I'm not trying to get sermonic on you this morning or too preachy, although it's hard for me not to do that. But I'm not to get too preachy, but I do want you to know that I do, I do realize that for some of you, and I have no one in mind, but for some of you during this season, this is a hard season. This is a difficult one. Painful memories are associated with this time. Um, let Simeon be a, uh, a figure who sits with you during this week. A figure who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, recognized that God had made a promise and that Simeon was not going to let go of that promise until it had been fulfilled. He was going to hold on to it. He was waiting and he was, he was hoping. Um, well, that's enough on, on Simeon. Moving on now to what he said. Here we have the nunc dimittis, if that's how that's properly pronounced. Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. When I was studying for this, reading through this text, I was struck by how many second person pronouns there are in this text. Your, your, your. Can I, I'm going to read, I'm going to kind of emphasize them as I read along here. Um, I've got the RSV, so there's some thys in here. That's okay. We're a right one church, so you're used to thys and thous. Um, Lord, let us now, let us thou, you, thy servant, depart in peace, according to thy word, your word. For mine eyes have seen thy, or your, salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, uh, Israel. You, you, uh, you. Um, which I do think is kind of a good model for praying, right? 
Um, And and we mature, I think, in some of these ways as as we pray and as we grow in our our prayer lives before the Lord. I mean, I even, sorry to refer to my children, but I hear it with my boys, you know, they just can't help it. It's a lot of me, 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 right? We're praying and, and I'd like this and help that and me, me, me. And, but here's Simeon at the end of his life and this praise, this prayer that explodes from him is laced with you language. It's you. You have done this. You are the one who made a promise. You are the one who did not leave Israel, my people, to their own devices. But you are the one who said that you would come and put your own son on the throne of David and come into the world. You are the one who said this. So here he's saying this very clearly in, this, in the Demetrius, in the let thou, now thy servant depart in peace, that it's his word, it's his salvation. They're his people. It's his glory. All of it is about God. It's radically God-centered, this prayer. Not to the exclusion of humanity. Because to be God-centered, I do believe, demands that we take humanity into account. Thus, the incarnation, Jesus became flesh. But it's radically God-centered. Karl Barth delivered a lecture early in his theological life in the beginning part of the 20th century. And in this lecture... Um, he was asked to do a lecture on the Bible. Now, Bart was leaving this background of, sort of, of liberal theology, uh, discovering really the theology of the, Re- of the Reformation. It was, it was like a bomb that was dropped on him, mainly driven out of a concern to preach and to preach well the gospel. And so Bart gets up in front of this congregation, in effect, to, to deliver this lecture that was entitled The New World of the Bible. And what Bart said was, in effect, most of the liberal theology I had been trained on in the best of late 19th century German liberal, pious, Protestant theology was um, a kind of, you look into the Bible and it becomes a mirror of yourself. I look into the Bible to see really the depths of my own existential being, which is surely the case on one level. But what Bart said was, as I began to study the Bible again anew with fresh eyes, I began to realize the Bible, the world of the Bible that I'm invited into is really a world that's dominated by God. It's God's story. And we get fitted into that. It's His story. It's His salvation. It's His Word. I do believe it's one of the great benefits that we have in worshiping every week together is that we come together and in our liturgy here, which is actually ready-made for this kind of reorientation and recalibration of our thinking about our own selves, is that in our worship we're reminded that our particular stories, our narratives, which really kind of become the, the, the means by which we view all the world, our narratives have been drawn up into something much bigger than the particularities of our own story. We, are, we say the Nicene Creed or the Apostolic Creed and all of a sudden we realize we're in something much bigger. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. This is what I believe. He stepped into the world to forgive us of our sins. This is what I believe. And it reorients our thinking and our way of viewing the world and even our view of our own selves. Now let us, your servant, depart in peace because of the promise of your word. Because of the promise of your salvation. It's you who have done this. We stand back in awe at what God has done on our account. Stop. You remember this from our series in Exodus earlier in the year. Here they come to the edge of the Red Sea. 
The Egyptian army is behind them. The Red Sea is in front of them. You talk about rock in a hard place. There it was. It's over. Game, match, over. And then Moses tells the people through God's own voice, move to the side. Move, step aside. Don't do a thing. Because I'm going to fight for you. And this is what I think uh, Simeon gets. Simeon recognizes that God has fought for us. And he's doing so in a way, frankly, that we would have never drawn up the plan according to, that, to, the, to this particular narrative. But this is how God is doing it through this child. Now remember, Simeon in the narrative is holding baby Jesus as he is saying uh, these particular words. My eyes have seen my salvation. Do you know where that comes from? You won't be surprised. It comes from Isaiah, and rightly so from Isaiah. Can I read this to you? Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, which comes right after verse 7, which is a verse that many of you are familiar with. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good tidings, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation And we heard about it from Canon Smalley this morning. The Yeshua, the Jesus of our God. All the the nations have seen this. Isaiah 52, verse 10. That's what Simeon is referring to. All eyes have seen the salvation of our God. But you know what kind of interpretive principle when it comes to the Bible is, um, what what are the three rules of real estate? I didn't listen to this very well when I bought a house. But what are the three rules? Um, Location, 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 right? Um, well, the three rules of sort of biblical interpretation tend to be context, 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 but I, I'd like to nuance that, but I'll toss it out there. Now, Isaiah 52 tends in a context. It's not just a sort of isolated verse. Literally two verses later, after that promise that the Lord has bared His holy arm, the, the arm of His power, for all the nations to see, this is God flexing His muscles So that the entirety of the world will see that He is God and that He redeems. He's flexing His muscles so that all will see His salvation. Literally, two verses after that, we're in that famous fourth servant song. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own devices. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the delight of the Lord to crush Him. So that transgressors might be made righteous. It was his delight. And by the way, I do believe Simeon's tapping into this. When in the next part, he looks at Mary and he says, this figure right here is for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. This is not a neutral figure. This baby that I'm holding right here, meek and mild, cute and cuddly, no crying did he make, that famous verse of of, uh, away in the manger. No, I, I, that, that's baloney, by the way. Of course he cried. But, um, you know, no crying did he make. You hear Simeon holding him. This is not a neutral figure. This is a figure that's divisive. This is a figure that's coming onto the scene and will be a stumbling block to many, to the Greeks because they want wisdom, to the Jews because they want a sign. But here is Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God on display for us. He's not a neutral figure. And just so that Mary gets it all the way, what a hard word to hear to a young mother. And a sword, by the way, is going to pierce your own soul 
Mary. Your own soul, a sword will pierce it. It's a hard word for a mother to hear. And here is Mary who's been told that this, who's amazed at what she's hearing. She knows that this, that her child, um, we know the Magnificat, her child is the Redeemer of the world, of Israel and the nations. And there she is. You think about of the seven words we get from Jesus on the cross, one of them is addressed right to his mother. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. I mean, surely that was the moment that fulfilled these words from Simeon when he said, a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. This is not a neutral figure. Even you, Mary, will not come out of this unscathed with this child that you're holding right now. But remember, verse 31 or 32, he's a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. He's the glory to your people, Israel. Um, in 1549, or the 1549 prayer book, there were two canticles that were provided uh, for evening prayer. One was the Magnificat that was read after the first lesson. And the second was the Nunc Dimittis here after the second lesson. So you had the Magnificat during evening prayer, and you had this particular one as well, or the two canticles. This goes all the way back to the 4th century where this particular prayer from Simeon right here was used as an evening prayer. It can be documented all the way back to the 4th century. And one scholar that I was reading suggests that it might have been Hilary of Poitiers who began this particular tradition. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of that, but it was at least suggested. So, uh, But at least there's some indication that probably back to the 4th century, this particular prayer right here has been used as an integral part of our worshiping life together in Catholic, little c, Catholic Christianity. In the West, it was used in Compline. And now, if you look at our 1979 prayer book, it is one of the two still for evening prayer, the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis, and it's also an option as a canticle in morning prayer. So this particular prayer here, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. That's that now, Nunc Dimittis, let me depart. Now, Lord, that has been integral and ingredient to the shaping of our worshiping lives and minds and hearts. This particular prayer here from Simeon. But what I was taken back by and sort of thinking through this particular prayer and its location within the prayer book life of at least the Anglican world is it's also the prayer that's used in funeral liturgies as the body is taken out of the church. So can I read it again? And we're going to get a little bit morose here, but we'll get happy before the day's over. Um, but a funeral liturgy with the body in front of us. And now we have this particular word. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. I was um, in conversation with someone this week about suffering and life and worship, and um, this person was telling me how discouraged he gets when he thinks about certain contexts of ministry, church life, that don't take into account the necessity of the gospel and really the only hope that it gives 
in the reality of both suffering and, and death. We're not inoculated from that as Christians. Um, remember what Paul said. Well, you grieve, but you don't sorrow as those who have no hope. But there's, there's no stoic or British, stiff upper lip, brave heart Christianity in the Bible. I mean, even Calvin, who we kind of view as a stoic figure, Calvin called that kind of Christianity where people don't weep and grieve, he, he called it stoicism, not Christianity. It's not Christianity. We weep, we grieve, we're not inoculated from the realities of, of this world. And it reminded me in my conversation with this, with this man that for many of the Reformation preachers and pastors and those that they trained and spawned off in that particular theological progeny, that they viewed their ministerial life as ingredient to what they call the Ars Moriandi, the art of dying. And it sounds so sort of heavy. Right? It's not Christmassy. There's no tinsel around right now. Um, but they viewed their role in the ministry as helping to prepare women and men for death. Now let your servant depart in peace. We've domesticated that in our world, haven't we? We do. We sort of set it off into certain areas of the hospital that's not in our living rooms anymore as it was 100 years ago. We've domesticated it. But nevertheless, as my father in his more melodramatic and poetic moments likes to remind me, you know, there's only one thing all people have in common, right? right. Well, that's it. We all have that in common. Can I read you something here? And then I'll come back to this. I read a novel this week, one of these I couldn't put down. I'm not necessarily commending it to you, but, well, I couldn't put it down. Uh, Julian Barnes, The Sense of an Ending. Anybody read it yet? There's some salacious parts in here, so, you know, PG-13. It's really a book about someone at the end of his life reflecting on where memory and history and fact actually collide. Because, you know, most of our memories become impressions of events that only correspond in a small fraction to what really occurred. <laughs> you realize that, right? You think we have impressions. I mean, the, the, the point of this whole novel here is he was dating a girl in Bristol and his good buddy who was up at Cambridge, um, he broke up with this girl and they go, she goes and ends up dating his buddy. And, and so he um, writes them a letter to, and, he, and he tells some of his friends to tell them off, just to tell them how it really felt. Well, somehow when he was in his mid-60s, that letter in its actual form came back into his own hands. And I won't read it all to you, but he was shocked by what he read. Because the way in which he communicated it to his buddies way back in the day was even in the moment. See, this is the point. Even history telling, even in the moments where we should be able to tell it the best because we're in it, we're living in it, we still only get part of it. Because of our own impressions and our own and our own location, so he he just tells his friends, "I wrote this letter and I called it, kind of told them off." Well, you get to read the letter in this novel, and it is scurrilous. It's, it's, it's horrible. You would you wouldn't say this to anybody, but he he, he was shocked. As, I didn't. Who wrote that letter? I wrote that letter. So he's reflecting on this thing as an older person, and he's, and I wanted to read you a few of these things and to compare it to Simeon. I remember a period in late adolescence when my mind would make itself drunk with images of adventurousness. 
This is how it will be when I grow up. I shall go there, do that, discover that. Love her and then her and her and her. I shall live as people in novels live and have lived, which once, which ones I was not sure, only that passion and danger, ecstasy and despair, but then surely more ecstasy would be in attendance. However, who said that thing about the littleness of life that art exaggerates? There was a moment in my late 20s when I admitted that my adventurousness had long since petered out. I would never do those things adolescents had dreamed about. Instead, I mowed my lawn. I took a holiday. I had my life. He says this, How often do we tell our own life story? How often do we adjust, adjust, embellish, make sly cuts? And the longer life goes on, the fewer are those who are around to challenge our account. To remind us that our life is not our life, merely the story we have told about our life. Told to others, but mainly told to ourselves. And one final thing. After he read this letter, it was not in retrospect cruel of them to warn me about the content of this letter. Why had I reacted by going nuclear? Hurt pride, pre-exam stress, isolation, excuses, all of them. And no, it wasn't shame I now felt or guilt, but something rarer in my life and stronger than both. Remorse. A feeling which is more complicated, curdled, and primeval, whose chief characteristic is that nothing can be done about it. Too much time has passed. Too much damage has been done for amends to be made. Uh, these are the kind of novels I like to read. I, I, I don't know if you like to read that. Um, but I thought about that as I was sort of engrossed in the world of this novel and, and, and reflected on it and thought, how sad, actually. How sad. How true and how sad. Because we are all caught, aren't we, in our own lives, in our own telling of the story of our lives, and who knows what the real thing actually is. But at the end of life, which is where we find Simeon, or where we found this character in this book, that's an important point, isn't it? Because there's no way, I, I believe, and maybe this reveals something about my own anthropology and view on life and sin, but I don't believe there's any way any of us come to the end of our lives without some sense of remorse, some conversation that you wish you took back, some action that was taken that turned the course of events so that they could never be altered again. I'm sure all of us will have that at that moment. And I hope we can do something like Simeon does in that moment. Like what I think you find if you read the great biographies of church leaders in the past who had their own remorse and regret. It bothered Calvin, one of my heroes, that he wasn't getting better. It bothered him. I hope that we can, like Simeon, in that Advent season of our lives, as we take into account the sum of reality, that we can take baby Jesus into our arms at that moment, at that particular place, and say, now, let your servant depart in peace. Not, and you see this is Simeon, not because I've performed righteously. He didn't say that, even though he was a righteous man. Not because of X, Y, or Z, but only because of this child that I'm holding in my arms. Now I can depart in peace. I believe that's an Advent word. I believe it's a word that shapes the way in which we view both our own lives 
and our only consolation both in this life and the next. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for your servant Simeon. Thank you for reminding us that all we really have to do in this world is hold on tightly to you. And the funny thing about it, Lord, we know is, as we look back on it, we see, really, you've been holding on to us. And we're grateful. And so, Lord, as we all, in our different seasons of life, wherever my friends who are here are, I pray that during this Advent season, we will hold tightly to this little child that's pressed into the world who now has borne our humanity and lifted it up to you by the Spirit, and we are found safe in Him. Let us depart in peace because our eyes have seen our salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.